Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S. And each week, we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs, and this is an episode of Ion Veterans that originally aired back in 2020. Now it's 2022, and the greatest beer run ever has gone from becoming a book to becoming a full-length movie starring Zac Efron, Russell Crowe, Bill Murray, and it's streaming right now on Apple TV+. The story is special because, of course, it's the real-life story of John Chick Donahue who risked his life to bring his army buddy's beer inside Vietnam. But I wanted to share this again because it's this interview that's with the legendary John Chick Donahue, the guy that actually did this. And I think you'll hear why he is one of my favorite veterans, and this is one of my favorite interviews of all time. Welcome to a special edition of CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now, this is a really special episode because it's Veterans Day. And we're about to hear a veteran story from Vietnam that's one of the greatest I've ever heard. Not because it's a story of combat, but it's a story of incredible friendship and patriotism. And best of all, beer. I said, well, let's. I'm going over there to, I'm going to bring beer to my buddies over there. And he thought that was great, so he gave me an extra case. Now, in the new book, The Greatest Beer Run Ever, we hear the story of how John Chick Donahue, 
who at the height of the Vietnam War snuck into combat zones just so he could have a drink with his buddies and remind them that his friends back home still cared. Never mind the fact that this plan was insane. How he got from a bar in New York to flying around Vietnam with a burlap sack full of beer is truly worthy of the title, The Greatest Beer Run Ever. Mr. John Chicky Donahue, how are you, sir? I'm great this morning, Phil. It's an honor to meet you. Tell me about before this legendary trip to Vietnam. Uh, you guys were all from the same neighborhood in New York. Tell me about life, late 60s, early 70s, and what you were seeing with the Vietnam War. Well, we, it's true. We all came from the same neighborhood. It's known as Inwood. It's the northern tip of Manhattan Island in New York City. And uh, it was uh, a very close community. Ethnically, it was Irish Catholics and uh, a big Jewish community. Yeah, and you'd said that uh, you'd seen a lot as the Vietnam War really heightened. Uh, you'd seen a lot of protests, and that didn't really sit well with you. Well, I had been in the Marines from uh, 58 to 62 active duty and two years in the, in the reserves. And uh, during the Vietnam era, uh, I tried to re-enlist, but I was too old. They didn't want me. Uh, so uh, I joined the merchant ships. And uh, I had actually been to Vietnam twice before. Uh, the beer trip was my third and last trip. And I saw uh, demonstrations in the streets and, and on TV. They were upsetting. In the beginning, okay, they were political demonstrations. Didn't bother me so much. But towards the end, the demonstrators started turning on the uh, on the GIs, and some of them have actually told me since uh, that they were spat on when the, they got coming home at the airports, and some of them had to rush to take their uniforms off just to travel home back for more, and that really offended me, and and I was hurt for them. So uh, when the bartender in uh, the local pub day of a big demonstration in New York uh, asked me for my Siemens papers and I asked him why he wanted my Siemens papers. He said because he wanted to go out of Vietnam because he knows those guys see it in the papers and on TV over there. Not that they had much TV over there. No, right, right. Uh, and, and, they must, and they must have been offended and he wanted to go over there and shake their hands and pat him on the back and buy him a beer and let them know that the neighborhood was supporting them and all of that. The women in the neighborhood, or the young girls at the time, uh, had put together news uh, letters that they uh, they all wrote letters collectively, like a, a local newspaper, and uh, sent them off to the uh, to the guys over there. So there were a list of addresses going around in the neighborhood. Well, I love what you did next, because this is where this story just is unlike anything I've ever heard. And it certainly couldn't happen today. Uh, just I'm amazed you were able to pull it off even back then in the 70s. But uh, uh, you decided, hey, that was a great idea. And yeah, somebody should bring those guys some beer. So um, you were already involved in the Merchant Marines. Um, tell me how you were able to board the ship. What ship did you find? And tell me how your journey started. Well, if anybody knows anything about shipping uh, as a mariner, you uh, go to a hiring hall, union hall, and uh, they'll have a, a big blackboard up in the front of it. It's like a big auditorium, and all the ships that are in port are listed in the left column going down. 
And then uh, the job titles that they're looking for across the, the top uh, of, of uh, ordinary uh, seamen, uh, a, a steward, uh, somebody in a black gang. And uh, you look at the ships, they'll show you where they're uh, going. They're going to the Gulf, meaning that it was probably a tanker, uh, and uh, where it was berthed. So... Uh, I went down to the Union Hall, and I looked up on the board, and right up on the top, uh, it was uh, a ship was listed. The name of it was the Drake Victory, and uh, it was listed as a pierhead, which meant that it was going to sail that day, almost immediately. Uh, you had to go right from that hiring hall right to the ship in order to make the ship. So... Uh, and then it had its location. The location in New York was actually in New Jersey. It was located at uh, Leonardo, New Jersey. Well, anybody who knows anything about Leonardo, New Jersey, knows it. it's a huge ammunition dump there. And there's only one pier in Leonardo, New Jersey. And it's, uh, it, it stretches out into the, into the bay, oh, almost a mile. And just one pier, and it's just for ammunition. So there was no doubt in my mind where it was going. It was going to Vietnam. So uh, so I had been on the beach. I'd been out of work. i come off a ship maybe two months before, and uh, it was now fall, so the cold weather's coming. I'm getting out of town, going to some warm weather. So I went up and I threw my card in, and uh, I took that job. Went out to Leonardo, New Jersey, and got on the great victory. And, you know, I can see you walking down the pier there. You got your civilian clothes on and everything. And uh, you brought with you, what, like a case of beer? You brought with you a couple cases of beer? Actually, I didn't have any beer when I left the Union Hall. I figured, let me get to the ship first. Uh, there must be a place around the pier where you can get beer. I mean, even if they only service the mariners. So uh, I got to the pier, and there was was a bar. And in Jersey, you they, you can buy case, a case of beer to take out. And I knew that. So uh, I got to the pier outside the gate, and I went to that bar. And I went in and I had a beer. And the guy says, are you, are you going on that ship? I said, yeah. He says, where are you going? I said, Vietnam, looks like. He says, yeah. I said, uh, uh, what kind of beer do you have? So he told me what beers he had. And uh, I bought a case. And... Uh, he gave me, he, he says, what are you going to, you need the whole case? I said, well, let's, I'm going over there. To, I'm going to bring beer to my buddies over there. And he thought that was great. So he gave me an extra case. Well, I drank it by the time I got there. It took me maybe a month and a half. It took me more than a month just to cross the Pacific and a few weeks to get down to the Panama and through the Panama. So a good month and a half to get there. And you're a man after my own heart in a long-standing Navy tradition. You're right. They sell beer right outside the port everywhere I was ever stationed. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Now, you also had a really interesting story at the ready, which I thought was super clever. <laughs> Explain to me what you said in order to go find, you know, your boys. My story was, he couldn't just be a friend. I made him uh, my stepbrother or my cousin or blah, blah, blah. I'd make up whatever, whoever I was talking to. My, 
my stepbrother's uh, 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 stationed not too far from here, and I want to go uh, catch up with him. And, and then when a guy was looking at me like, no, 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 I said, and then I'd add something like, uh, we lost our mother uh, in September or something, and I promised her before she died that I would go over and find Bobby or something like that, whatever it was. I told him the sob story. And uh, obviously they felt for it or they just said, get out of here. (laughs) Well, sure as hell it worked. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about this epic adventure and this incredible book called The Greatest Beer Run. Um, let's, uh, Let's continue. And you get in there, permission to go ashore, you leave the ship there, and then boom, what happens next? Well, actually, I found a guy uh, before I even went ashore. I had permission to go ashore. I was waiting for the, it's an ammunition ship, so it's not tied up at a pier so somebody can come and throw a bomb at it. It's out in the middle of, of a bay, and it's guarded. And the, and the guards are coming out in what they call a launch boat. The launch is coming out with these MPs on it, American MPs. And I noticed on the MP's helmet, there were a number. Like, you know, MP 127th Battalion or whatever. And I looked at the number. I said, that's familiar. And I looked at my list. And the first one on my list was Tommy Collins. And he was 127th MP Battalion. I said, oh, my God. So I pulled up to the ship. They come up the gangway. And I greeted him right away. And uh, I said, hey, any of you guys know uh, Tommy Collins from New York? Oh, yeah, Tommy Collins. Yeah, we know Tommy Collins. This is I said, well, you know, I started telling the story. I said, uh, is he around here? Around? You see that ship over there? They said, as soon as I drop off these guys here, these guards, American guards, I got to go over there and pick him up. He's, uh, I got to go over and relieve him and bring him, bring him to shore. These guys are his relief, these other guys. I said, oh, my God. So I said, can I go with you? Yeah, sure. Come in. <laughs> so uh, the rank and file guys. They were just, some of them ran away from me. They thought I'd get him in trouble. One guy in particular, he wanted nothing to do with me. <laughs> I terrified him. So I avoided him. But most of them thought, what a lock this is. Sort of shit, sure, how can I help you? You know, one of those attitudes. Oh, so I got a launch and went over there. And uh, I'm coming up the gangway. And I see standing up on the top of the gangway on the ship looking over like any. GI waiting for his relief to go off duty is Tommy Collins. He's looking down at me. So I said, Hey, Tommy. He says, Chucky. Oh my God. What the hell are you doing here? So I went up. I said, uh, He says, No, really. What are you doing here? I said, uh, I promised your mother I'd come over here and find you. And I got some beer for you from the guys in the neighborhood. He just, we just laughed. Thought it was crazy. No, really, Chicky. What are you doing over here? Tommy, really? That's what I'm doing over here. <laughs> and what I love from the video I saw is uh, when he was asked about it, he says, uh, who are you here with? And you looked at him and you're like, I'm here with you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They all said the same thing. Well, not all of them. Him and, and, and Dugan. Dugan asked me the exact same question. Who are you here with? And I'm looking around like, there ain't nothing here. We were out in the field with him, and it was just rice patties and woods, and there was nobody else there. Right. Who could I be with but you? We uh, went ashore. We went to his barracks. They got rid of most of their weapons and all, and now they were off duty. 
So we went to uh, a, a bar somewhere in, in, you know, near the base there in Quidon. And, uh, and I invited his buddies who were on watch with him, whatever. So we went there and uh, it was drinks for everybody. So we, uh, we had a party. During the party, there was other GIs there from different outfits, and one guy was a big Texan. He had a big cowboy hat on, and uh, he had a first cab patch on his uh, fatigues. And the first cab was the next guy on my list was Dugan, and Dugan's address was the first cab. So uh, I went up to the Texan, and I'm in my civilian clothes and uh, 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 Levi's and and a shirt. And uh, I said, hey, uh, you're with the first cow? He says, yeah. I said, I'm looking for a guy by the name of Dugan. He's in, and I showed him the address. Oh, he's up in uh, on K, he says, up in the Highlands. I said, oh, God. So I told him the sob story, and uh, or a version of it. And uh, he says, well, if you want, he says, uh, you can. Uh, I'll bring you up there in, uh, in the morning. If you want, I can, you could can fly up in my plane. Like he had his own plane. I said, your plane? <laughs> he was the crew captain on a, 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 an albatross. So uh, I said, I can go up there with you? Yeah, sure. Just show up in a tarmac at 0800 hours and I'll bring you up there. Which, after the party all night, the guys made sure they had me at the airport at 0800 hours, which was great that they were MPs because now they're in their MPs uniform. And uh, they rode out there with me and they drove right up to the plane. All right, we drove around looking for the guy. There he was. There's his plane. So they drove right up to the plane. I get out. I'm surrounded by MPs in uniform. And I must be somebody, not just a, a, a seaman. Right. He's got to be somebody. <laughs> so uh, They must have thought you were there I, on like the Bob Hope tour or something. They must have thought you were like a, it's a celebrity well, or something. Well, the Texan greeted me like he knew there was something up. Oh, this guy is. Hey, yeah, yeah I'm over here. Yeah, okay. What's your, uh, put your name down here. I put my name down on what was the manifest. And he says, shooting board. So I bought it. <laughs> so many visuals I'm sure you capture in that book, but it is amazing to think about like what a civilian would be doing and how everybody must have just loved your ass sitting in the bar going, I can't believe one of our guys from back home just came out to visit us. Oh, that's awesome. It was fun. Now, which friend was it that you visited that was actually out at a fire base? Like, was actually well, out was on Dugan. the front line? That was Dugan. That was Dugan. He was not actually at a fire base. What had happened was he was up in where I was going, on K, the second guy. And uh, the first day Cal. And I got to on K. And I, a guy took me in a truck to the base, which was about a mile or two away from the, from the airfield. And uh, when I found this guy's barracks, and I, I don't remember the barracks. There wasn't really barracks, more like tents or something. There was nobody there except the supply sergeant. And the supply sergeant, I, I asked the supply sergeant, I'm looking for this company, that, 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 uh, Dugan. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, Dugan, guy from New York. I says, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I told him the sob story. So he says, uh, well, you missed them. He says, they all went up uh, north early this morning. The whole outfit was moved up north. So I said, do you know where? Like, 
I didn't know any place in Vietnam other than the coast anyway. So uh, he says, no, just north. I said, oh, I'm trying to, you know, telling them how bad it is. Mom died and all of that. And he's feeling sorry for me now. So he says, well, I'll tell you what. He says, if you want, you can write him a, a, a note or a letter, and I'll make sure he gets it this afternoon. So I'm looking at the guy. He must have a, a, a special way to get to wherever they are. And I asked him, I said, you just told me you don't know where they are, but you can guarantee me you can get him a, a, a letter this afternoon? He says, yeah. I said, how could you do that? He says, what do you mean? We got a 1,300 mail run. Like, doesn't everybody have a 1,300 mail run? <laughs> so I said, can I get on that 1,300 mail run? And he looked at me and he shook his head and said, hey, you got here, didn't you? <laughs> That's awesome. So you somehow able to Shanghai yourself all the way out there to where they were at. And um, I recall from uh, another interview you'd done, um, you spent the night or something there. What was that like? Oh, well, when I arrived, by this time, it's the next day from when I left the ship. And it's uh, late in the afternoon. It was By the time I got up to Fubai, which is just below Wei, uh, up near the, the DMZ, uh, the, I got off the plane there, and they they got, they waited for a truck. A truck came and took them and drove them. I don't know how many miles, ten or fifteen miles into like a hilly area where there was an old French colonial uh, chapel, and oh, I don't know, dozens and dozens of UE helicopters parked all around it, and that turned out to be what they call LZ Tombstone. So. I get off the truck with these guys, and uh, they went into a tent I held back and watched. And when they come out of the tent, one of the guys who was feeding me information, he come over to me and he said, we're going up to LZ Jane at 1,800 hours. So I said, great. So I walked into the tent, and there was a clerk sitting at a desk. And I said, uh, you got a, uh, you we going up to LZ Jane? He says, yes, sir. I said, well, uh, want to put my name on a manifest i got to get up there so uh, he said what is your name sir i said john uh, c dunnyu and he said uh, what is your rank sir i said i'm a civilian a civilian i says yeah i guess he didn't look at me maybe it was so dark in the place <laughs> and uh he says i'm sorry so you're gonna have to speak to major mika and as i as he said that i heard behind me. that now I thought he was the only guy in the tent, but I didn't know. I was followed into the tent by a guy who turned out to be Major Mika. <laughs> so he says, what do you got to see me about? So I turned around and I said, are you Major Mika? He says, yeah. So, you know, my time in the service, I knew the lingua, lingo. So I spoke to him like uh, we were equals, not like I'd been a PFC in the Marine Corps and he was a major. So I said, well, uh, I got to get up to LZ Jane. I got to see somebody up there. It's uh, rather important. He says, oh, yeah? He says, uh, what for? You know, can you tell me about it? Yeah, if I have to tell you about it, I can tell you about it. But you're not going to believe me anyway, so there's no sense telling you. He says, you guys are all alike. And that's the first time I realized. Maybe it had happened before, but I didn't realize it. The military took me as some sort of federal agent. Now, the obvious one would have been a CIA agent, 
But there were other agents there, as I found out while I was there, when I got to Saigon later on. So, and, and they, and they, they treated me with deference. I went along with it. I didn't try to convince them otherwise. I never mentioned the word CIA, the words CIA. Right, right. Uh, but I just, I, I allowed them to believe that. And, and it fit right into my story when I told them, honestly, if I told you the story, you wouldn't believe me anyway. <laughs> so he laughed. Ha, 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 ha. He says, tell me, did you eat? So I said, no, I haven't eaten. He says to the clerk, put his name on it. You got his name? All right, put him on it. Come on, let's go have a, have something to eat. So I thought that was great. Here's a PFC in the Marine Corps having a, a meal with a guy in, who's a major in the office's area to eat there. And everything. I loved it. <laughs> so, I didn't even think about the fact that you could have been thought of as a spook or as somebody, you know, on the Intel side that was in civilian clothes, but you're damn right. Yeah. I mean, in, in that kind of combat zone, telling them you were just there to see your buddy cause you wanted him to know we still cared. Um, they never would have believed that. And you're right. There would have been guys embedded in those units or going out to visit those units that were managing the Intel from the agency side. Now it's nighttime. It's just the sun's just going down. It's about six o'clock in the evening, I guess. And they called him in, the sergeant on the radio when I got off the helicopter. And what are you doing here? I told him the truth. For some reason, I I thought I could tell this guy the truth, and it worked out. He says, "Oh, this is fantastic." He says, "Get Dugan in here." So they called him in on the radio. They didn't tell him anything, and they used na- numbers, not names, whatever. And Dugan, and, he, and the guy put me in a little hole in the ground. They had dug a little foxhole there. And he said, sit down here for a minute. He's coming in now. And he put a, a, a poncho over me so you couldn't see me. And Dugan comes in, and I heard him say to the guy, yes, yeah, Sarge, uh, what do you want me for? What, what, what's happening? He says, oh, I don't want you. This guy does. And he pulls up the poncho. And he's Chicky. <laughs> and he says, Chicky, tell you, what the hell are you doing here? Oh, my God. I said, well, I come over to see you. I said, uh, no, really, what are you doing here? And I looked, and that's the place where I looked around. There was nothing there, just nothing. I said, I'm just, Ricky, I'm here to, to see you. I got some beer here for you. He says, oh, my. So the sergeant said, all right, stop being uh, buddy, buddy here. He says, take him, get him out of here. I'm gonna, I don't want to get in trouble. But Dugan says, get him out of here. Where, where am I supposed to take him? Wherever you are, take him with you. He says, I'm out in an ambush. <laughs> I don't care. He can't stay here. Take him. So he took me. And uh, he explained, you know, where the lines were, da, 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 da. So, uh, you know, I just, okay, I'm walking along. And then I get to this ambush, and there's about a dozen guys there. So. And uh, they, he introduces me to the guys. But they're all dug in. And they have a little, little hole dug in. They're all camouflaged up, and, and they were in the ambush. So I said, it looks like a movie here. And uh, I said, what's going on? They tell me. They said that they think there's an NBA regiment or something over there, and uh, if they come towards the base, they got to comply us first. So we're here to, to uh, you know, watch them, make sure that. Now I realize I'm in a bad spot. And uh, during the night, Dugan went to sleep. He just laid down 
and fell asleep, and he had me sitting in the hooch, like the little hole. He'd tell you, tell me, you know, try to sleep here. So, and they gave me a, a grenade launcher. They, uh, in the middle of the night, some guy comes over. I never slept, by the way. Dugan sound asleep. Some guy comes over, wakes Dugan up, and says, Dugan, Dugan, I need your starlight scope. This is a, a, a telescope you can see in the, in the dark. Yeah, yeah. So he says, wow, what are you, what are you seeing things out there again? He says, no, no, Dugan, there's something out there. We can hear them. Ah, shit. So he gets up, and uh, he takes this, he goes over to where they're looking, and he comes back. He says, yeah, we got some action out there. He says, uh, now listen, if uh, if we get run over, he, he gave me an M79, a grenade launcher. Again, thank God I was in the Marines. I knew how to operate it and all. But I said, Dugan, I don't want one of these things. You got your mind? I don't need this. Yeah, you probably don't, he says, but God forbid if we get overrun, you, you might want it. And the, and the other guy says, as if to say, stop talking. He says, take it. He says, if you don't want to use it on end, use it on yourself. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Just shut up. Oh, okay. I shut up. And he pointed, that's where we're about, I don't know how many clicks, but I guess it was a few hundred yards back across the field where the main perimeter was. So they went set up and they called for flares and the flares came. And when the flare lit up the area, everybody started firing. Bang, 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 bang. And I just, I made love to that, that dirt hole. And, uh, that went on for about 20 minutes or so, not a half hour. And that was it for the rest of the night. That whoever was out there moved, whichever way, but they didn't come over us. Thank God. <laughs> then the next morning we went in, and uh, they gave me breakfast, a can, sea ration can with an open. So that was my first meal in the field. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and your first taste of combat in Vietnam, man. That's crazy. Wow. Later on, I got caught at the embassy the actual morning of the Tet Offensive when it started. And uh, that was, I saw a lot more around Saigon than I did out by the DMZ with the first cap. Oh, wow. A front row seat to a page that most of us have only read about in history, and that's the Tet Offensive. Holy cow. Mm. Uh, Tell me more about when you finally caught up with your best friend, Mr. Pappas. Well, as it turned out, Pappas was the last guy I found. By this time, uh, I found uh, Dugan. And uh, on my way to Dugan, I actually found uh, another guy, Kevin McClune. And then uh, I got back to where my ship was, and the ship had sailed away. Uh, And then I... Had to. They wanted me to stay there and get me paperwork from Saigon because I had no passport. I, I couldn't get out of the country. I had to go to Saigon, and they told me I needed orders just to fly to Saigon. So I said they didn't. I, I couldn't. I didn't know how to tell them. I've been flying all over this country. I didn't have. I don't have any orders. I don't have nothing. So uh, I said, listen, I'm going to go down to Saigon and I'll I'll check it at the consul down there in Saigon. So they said, they're not going to let you get down there. I said, hey, okay, thanks. I'll try. If I can't make it, I'll come back. So uh, I went out to the airport, and I got a ride to Saigon. And uh, when I got to Saigon, I went to the uh, the consul, which is 
part of the embassy grounds. It's a little a building separate, but on the embassy grounds. So I went to the uh, to the embassy and uh, to the consul office, and I reported in blah blah blah. And uh, I had to go through the administrative stuff. I had to get a passport. They gave me a passport. I had to get uh, a visa to get out of Vietnam. They gave me a visa, and uh, I had to fend for myself. And, and, and in the meantime, that took weeks. I still had Bobby and two other guys on my list. Uh, I found I didn't couldn't find the other two guys, no matter how hard I tried. And actually, one had been shipped home. Uh, that was McFadden, and the other guy was killed. Uh, one of the Reynolds boys. Uh, so I never found them, but the last guy on my list was Pappas. So I used to hang out in the Caravelle Hotel on a rooftop bar. It's safe to drink there. Uh, nobody could just walk in. They had to get through past Marine guards uh, at the at the hotel entrance, where because the uh, Australian Australian Marine. The Australian Embassy was there. Anyway, I'm sitting there and, uh, da, 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 and I'm talking to one of the reporters or whoever. And I said, do you know where this outfit is? He says, oh, Long Ben. He says, it's not far. He says, about 25 miles or so north of here near Benoit. So I said, oh, I said, uh, he says, why? I said, my buddy's up there. And I give a sob story, whatever. Right. And uh, he says, uh, well, you know, I can get you up there. He says, uh, I, I send a, a sub truck, something up there every every day. A truck goes up or whatever. So I said, could I get a ride? Yeah, be here in the morning and, uh, you know, he'll pick you up. So I was there in the morning. Guy picked me up, took me up to Pappas. Uh, I got to the ammo dump. Uh, he was in an ammo dump. And uh, I got to, uh, they let me in after a while. And I found him in the middle of the ammo dump. He was the communications guy. He was the sergeant, the director of communications. But the ammo dump was a huge ammo dump. It was like the biggest ammo dump outside of the States. So I spent two or three days with Pappas there. Now, I didn't tell you. In the meantime, the Tet Offensive had started in Saigon. Yeah. So that was shut down. So I was safer with Pappas up there. And in Saigon, actually. So I stayed there, and I, he says, what happened in Saigon? So I'm telling them all. So now I'm the center of everything there because I'm telling them the stories of what went on in Saigon and da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> so I left Tapas after two or three days, went back down to Saigon, and that night I'm sitting up on that rooftop bar the same Caravelle Hotel, and the whole sky lit up. And it was up in the direction of Long Bin. Mm. And I and somebody said at the bar, "Oh shit!" He said they must have got the ammo dump. That could have that could only be the ammo dump. The fireworks were going off. It was huge. So I said, "Oh my god!" I just left my friend there, Bobby. So the next morning, I got back in that car. That other that guy gave me got me a ride up. Actually, I went up back in a convoy that was going up there, and I got up to uh, Longden. Uh, and I got to the ammo dump gate, and it was crazy. The place was a mess. And But I knew the guards at the gate from the previous couple of days I was there with Pappas. So they got me into the center of the ammo dump. I went back into the bunker where Pappas was. And uh, by the way, it was dangerous just walking around there. There was unexploded uh, shells all over the place. 
And uh, I look at Pappas. You could tell he hadn't been asleep. He's a wreck. He says, you, you told me this war was over. You told me they were just going to be negotiating. Look at this place. Does this look like the war's over? And he was calling me all sorts of names and everything. USOP, blah, 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 blah. And I'm as happy as in a pig. I'm looking at my buddy there, and he's alive. He's very much alive. He's chewing my butt out. <laughs> I really thought on my trip up there, I was going up there to claim his body. Mm. I actually thought this was one way for me to, a, a way to get home. I would go home, I will go home with Bobby. And uh, here he was screaming at me and everything. And I, I, I was, okay, he's alive. Nothing wrong with my buddy. <laughs> so uh, we spent another night there and I went back to the Oh, man. I, I love hearing about this. I know there's a hundred more stories, a hundred more tales we could uncover. I want to save them for the book. Um, tell me a little bit about the book and, um, you know, what you're doing with it when it comes out. Well, uh, you know, years later, we, uh, after that reunion you spoke about, we got together 47 years later. Two of them I had never spoken to since Vietnam. And uh, we decided to write a book. And so a woman came to me, a reporter, Joanna Malloy. She's my co-author. And I had known her from the Daily News in New York. She had just retired. And she says, I want to write your story in a, in a book. I want to collaborate with you and, and we'll do this together. So I said, great, sure. I Just for the record, because I've been telling the story at that time for 47 years. Most people didn't believe me. And, uh, and I just got retired of people looking at me as if to say, you're full of it, you know. So uh, we wrote the book, and uh, it's come, and we, we self-published it. And then uh, after we got it out, we got a deal with HarperCollins, the publishers. They picked it up, and it's being uh, a revised new edition. is coming out uh, November 11th for the uh, Any Marines listening, Semper Fi, for the Marine Corps birthday. And... Uh, it's been it's been all great fun ever since. I got to say, as good as this book is, you were even better. But just hearing it from you, you are one crazy son of a bitch, sir. Well, yeah, I guess we were all crazy at a certain time in our life. And that must have been the time I was my craziness, but uh, or silliness, whatever. <laughs> but now I'm uh, I'm a retired old grandpa and I enjoy uh, being retired. I enjoyed being a grandpa. Uh, I'm a lucky guy. Amen, sir. And uh, can I just ask, after all that we've heard, um, what does Veterans Day mean to you? Is there any advice you have for people today in trying to honor our fellow veterans? Well, you know, for all the years, I didn't, I wasn't active with the American Legion or any veterans group. I didn't join anything when I came out of the service and when I came back, I just didn't. And But years later, I, I realized a lot of my buddies who I've met through this story needed services from the Veterans Administration. And most of them didn't get it for a number of reasons. They weren't quick to be telling their experiences, and it wasn't easy for them to know how to get through the bureaucracy. So I would advise any guy coming out of the service, the earlier the better, to join one of them veterans organizations. 
just to be kept informed of what benefits might be out there. Because they've all gone through a time in their life that they'll be examining for many, 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 many years. And they need help doing that. Easily one of the most patriotic people I've ever met, John Chicky Donahue. I just cannot thank you enough for sharing your story with us, sir. Thank you, Phil. It was a, it was great. And that is not the end of the story. Everything you just heard will soon be made into a major motion picture when John Chick Donahue's story gets written and directed by Peter Farrelly, winner of two Academy Awards for Green Book, and of course the Farrelly Brothers, uh, known for something about Mary. But if you can't wait for the movie, I highly recommend the book, The Greatest Beer Run Ever, John Chick Donahue. And that's available everywhere you get books. I'm Navy veteran, journalist, and a big fan of beer, Phil Briggs. And to all my fellow veterans out there, thank you for everything you've done. And thank you for everything you continue to do. Take care. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.